The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Most of you know we're still studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we are in chapter 6, and we're doing a subsection, which I'm calling Learning to Pray, and we're looking at verses 9 through 13, and today we're going to be in verse 13, which is going to be the last sermon on this subsection. And in verse 9, Jesus says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And we are in verse 13, where it says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. Now, we studied where we prayed, Your kingdom come, your will be done. And what we need to realize while we're here, we're in a battle. And the battle is between the two kingdoms, and there's a kingdom, folks, of evil. There's a kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, kingdom of the devil, or the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to tell you, we can't be ignorant of this kingdom. We can't just ignore it, because the devil is the prince of this world, and we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So that means we are living in hostile territory. We are living in the enemy territory because there's this kingdom of evil, and this kingdom of evil has a king. And in John 14, 30, Jesus said this, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. So who is this evil one? Now, Jesus is teaching us to pray, and he says, deliver us from the evil one. I want to talk to you briefly about the devil. And I want to talk to you because I'm not talking about someone's figment of imagination, some character that's made up, but he's a reality. I mean, if he was just a made-up character, just a force of evil, and he's not active in this world, why would Jesus teach us to pray and say, deliver us from the evil one? So let's think about his character. Now, there's many things that the Bible calls the devil, the evil one, the, you know, the accuser of brethren, and so forth. But let's talk about his personality a bit. And the one I like to look at, which is, describes him in 1 Peter 5.8, And it tells us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks in the light of a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Now, let me ask you a question. You're going on a trip to a safari, you're in the jungle, and you know that jungle is filled with lions. How would you be walking? Would you just be walking normally? not paying attention to your surroundings? Or you're going to be vigilant, sober, paying attention because there's a hungry lion that's going to eat you up. Wouldn't you pay attention? Now, he is a person, and he is the enemy of God and his people. Now, we have Blessings when we think of the names of Jesus. You know, he's the bread alive and so forth. But there's a lot of names of the devil that gives us warnings. He's called the deceiver. He's called a liar. He's called a murderer. Accuser of brothers and sisters. Destroyer. So if we are going to prepare for defense, we have to understand who our enemy is, how he operates. And again, folks, we think we, in our world and us, we laugh at the idea of the devil. We get the idea of some kind of comical character with a pitch and fork. You know, we have 
basketball, football teams named after the devil and so forth. And we really don't think it's, he's that powerful. He's some kind of a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Deer kind of character, if you will. So we don't take him as much or seriously as we should because devil exists and some people think, well, he exists, but he's in hell right now. No, he's not in hell. He will be one day, but he's not in hell. He will be there because <clears throat> my Bible tells us in Matthew 24, 25, 41, says, then he will also say to those who on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that is yet to happen, but devil is not in hell. So we don't understand who our enemy is. And sometimes, especially in our time now, we think our enemy is the Republicans, our enemy is the Democrats, our enemy is the IRS, or our mother-in-law. But these are all flesh and blood, right? But the Bible clearly tells us in Ephesians 6.12, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. And the reason we so many times don't win our spiritual battles is because we don't show up for war. We don't expect war. We wrestle with the wrong things. And the Bible clearly tells us not to wrestle with the flesh and blood. So think of his position. He's real, but what his position is in the world. Again, if you look at Ephesians 6.12, it says he's uh, principalities against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. <clears throat> See, the devils served God in heavenly places before, before he rebelled against God, and then he fell. And there was a host of angels, one-third of angels, that followed him. And we call them demons. So the devil is the Lord of these demons. And he is called the prince of the air. If you look at Ephesians 2.2, 2, it says, In which when you walked according to the curse course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who work now works in the sons of who? Disobedience. <clears throat> and the devil, through his demons, spirits, folks, I want to tell you, not only he controls individuals, he controls nations. He controls kings. Oftentimes, we do think that we say, you know, the heart of the king is in God's hands, yes. But we need to also understand that the devil has power in this world. We need to understand that, and again, you know, I don't believe the pulpit is a place for politics, but sometimes those politics do intersect biblically. Now, once you understand that, devil has an influence in the UN. Devil has an influence in what's going on in the world. And what's going to happen is he's gathering all these leaders for a battle of Armageddon. How is it going to come to pass? How is this battle going to come? It's not on the screen, but you guys can read Psalm 2. And he says, why do nations rage? Why do they come together? Why do they plot against me? Because I already set my king on the hill. It's a done deal, but how is it going to come? It's going to come through nations. And look at Revelation 16. Verses 13 through 16, he says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to who? To the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that gray, the great day of God Almighty. And he says, Behold, I am coming as a thief, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. And they gathered them together at the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. You see, God has angels. The devil has angels. And prince, he rules the kingdom of this world. 
And folks, think about it. When Jesus was being tempted, and we'll talk about it, what did the devil offer him? And one of the temptations, he said, look at all these kingdoms. I'll give them to you. Just bow the knee, right? Well, do you see Jesus disputing that with him? Saying, no, these are mine. No, he didn't dispute that. And folks, there's forces in the world that are working in the hearts and minds of world leaders and rulers to bring them to this battle of Armageddon. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says this about them. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the midst of God, should shine on them. So they are blinded by these demons, by these forces. And we have a generation today that walks in darkness, and we always had, and they're blinded by this dark prince. So the devil works through his dark angels, if you would, who work through people. Now, sometimes we say the devil, and we think, you know, horns, somebody mean. If he's working through a person, they look like one of the Transformers or something, right? No, they just look like regular folk. Do you remember what happened to Judas? Judas was one of the disciples. He looked like a regular person. Nobody expected him. But what happened to him? Look at Luke 22 and verses 3 and 4. When he's getting betrayed, Jesus, he said, The Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. So there was the evil in Judas, and how did it happen? Entered Judas, the devil, his demons, and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And we know the story, and we think, oh, you know, he's mean, he's, he's such a sinner, and all that kind of stuff. He's just a force of evil. Well, let me give you another example. And Jesus is speaking in Matthew 16, and verses 21, 23. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. So here we see Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen to him. The reason he came to this earth and how everything is going to play out. But then look at verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far it Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. So here's Jesus saying, this is the will of God. This is the reason I came. This is what's going to happen. Then proud Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, man, I don't know what you're talking about. It ain't going to happen, man. I got you. I got your back. You're not going to die. Everything, you know, we'll take care of everything. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Did he say, Peter, get behind me? Peter, rebuke him? No, he said, Satan, get behind me. Because Peter allowed the devil, Satan, and I'll use that word, you know, versibly so, but he allowed the thoughts impact his thinking. And Jesus saying, this is what's going to happen. This is the will of God. And he's saying, no, it's not going to happen. And what's interesting, he says, you're mind, not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And we heard that throughout the sermon. Things, first seek ye the kingdom of righteousness and all those things be added onto you. So what did Peter put ahead? Things of men, his proudness, not the things of God. The next thing I want you to understand is the devil and his power. He's a person, he's a personality, he's the prince, God of this age. Now what we need to understand and what a lot of people 
kind of underestimate is he has a lot of power. So it's foolish for us to underestimate the power of the devil or laugh at his power. In fact, if you look at that verse again, uh, Matthew 6.13, in the prayer it's pleading God, but deliver us from the evil one. Again, why do you need deliverance? Well, first is evil. Second, he's, he's very powerful from his power. And there's lots of verses that talk about the power of the devil, of the demons in the Bible. And I'll just give you a few of them. In Acts 26, 18, we read to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. And what do people need to turn from? From the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Paul warns us in 2 Thessalonians 2, in verse 9, he says, The coming of lawlessness, one, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So, folks, these wonders and all those things that are going to happen and signs, they're going to be real. Now, they're going to be, the goal is to deceive you, but they're going to be real. In Matthew 24, 24, it says, For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs. Not Christ or any legitimate people, but it says false Christ, false prophets will rise, and they'll have these great signs and wonders to deceive. And if possible, even the elect. So devil, folks, is a supernatural person. He has supernatural power, devilish power, and he is a powerful individual. I've heard of a man that was in college and he's studying, and the professor gave him a zero on the test. And he went to the professor and said, Professor, I don't think I deserve the zero. And the professor said, I don't think you did either, but that's the lowest grade I had. And some of us are failing just as miserably in our lives because we don't prepare for battle. We underestimate the power of the devil. And folks, you know, some people say, in Jesus' name, they, you know, you see these televangelists, <coughs> excuse me, praying, Jesus' name, we cast you into prison, we cast you, we bind devil and all that kind of stuff. And then the next week they're praying the same way again, you know, they're, you know, like the devil is a little kitty cat, put nail, you know, tail between his legs, ran, ran away, and they bind him and do all these things. And I'm like, well, didn't you bind him that last week? What happened? You let him go? He's not a bit of afraid of us, you know. We see movies. Sometimes you see people or a priest put a golden cross in front of them and they run away. And that's what the devil wants us to think. But that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, people say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's a Greek word for all that kind of teaching, right? Baloney. And I want to tell you, the devil is not the least bit afraid of us. He's more clever than we are. He has much stronger. He has powers above and beyond that any we possess in terms of creation. He, he got a head start on us. He knows everything that he needs to know. And you know what's interesting? Even in his falling state, that he possesses here on earth. Even Michael, the angel, didn't bring any charges against them when he disputed the body of Moses. If you look at Jude 9, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when disputed the, about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. You see, the devil is the ruler of countless legions, Again, he's not afraid from us. He's not going to flee from us. And let me give you an example of this. And then we'll discuss how he can flee from us. But let me give you an example in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 11. Let me give you a background. You know, there, there's evangelism is happening. Paul is preaching. People are repenting, coming to Christ. And in verse 11 it says, Now God work." 
unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So Paul is out there preaching, doing miracles and so forth. A lot of conversions going on. But then if you read in verses 13 and following, it says, Then some of the interrogant Jews, exorcists, took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus, over whose he had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you in the, by the uh, Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know. But who are you? So Paul is doing all these miracles. And there's some folks that say, hey, we're going to do the same thing. And folks, these are chief priests. These are not, you say, unreligious people. And the devil says, Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? Tell me anything. And then look at verse 16. It says, Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Jesus I know. Paul I know. Who are you? He attacks them. They got beat up. Learned a valuable lesson that day, I hope. Ran out of the house naked, wounded. Because only ignorance scoffs at the power of the devil. Devil is a supernatural person, supernatural power, and he's the dictator of this evil empire. Now, what the word does not teach, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So what happens is we just need to reread the instructions, right? And what the instructions say? In James 4, 7, it says, Therefore, submit to God. Right? Submit to God, then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That changes the equation, doesn't it? Submit yourselves. So you see, to have authority in our lives, any spiritual authority, you must be in submission to a higher Authority. And when you submit yourselves unto God, that leaves the devil with face to face with who? You? No, with him. Who's in you is greater, right? In John 15, 4, uh, four in verses five, 4 and 5, we read, Abide in me, and I in you, and as the branch you cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the wine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the wine, you are the branches, who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Folks, not just resisting the devil, it says here, you can't do nothing without me. And then in 1 John 4, 4 says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because you're so powerful? No. Because he who is in you is greater than he is who is in this world. So we need to understand the devil is a powerful force. He's the prince. He has powers, and he's the prince of this world. So not only he is powerful, what's the purpose of him? What's his unholy ambition, if you will? What does he want? He wants to overthrow God. That's his ambition. And he's going to destroy everything that reminds him of God. And really, he's deceived because he really thinks that he can defeat God. In Ezekiel 28, 17, it says, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. His wisdom was corrupted by his pride. He was a very powerful being in heaven before when he was Lucifer. He had wisdom beyond. He was beautiful. But that corrupted him, his wisdom. And if you will, he's not thinking straight. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, he says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, 
you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the sons of God. I will also sit on the mound of the congregation in the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. He said, I'm going to be like God. And as soon as he said that, in Luke 10, 18, we read, and he said to them, I saw Satan fly like lightning from heaven. No longer Lucifer, son of the morning, he became Satan, father of the night. His angels fell with him. He is in revolt against the almighty, almighty God, and his purpose is literally trying to overthrow God. And how does he work? How does he work? His key method is deception. If you look at John 8, it says, You are of your father the devil and desires of your father you want to do. He is a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. So he rules the kingdom of darkness, and his key method is deception. And his plan, he is your adversary if you're a son of God or a daughter or child of God. His plan is to ruin your life too. And that's why Paul writes to Ephesians in 6.11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So you may be able to withstand the methods of the devil. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Lest should no one take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In 2 Timothy, we read that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So if you look at all those three verses that we just read, there's wiles, his devices, snares of the devil. Basically, it means... What are, the, what are his methods? How does he come at us? How can we be prepared for battle? And you know, really, in reality, there are just three ways that he comes at you. Three ways. And all things in the world find, fall under one of these three categories. And 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. For all that's in this world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Lust of the flesh is doing, lust of the eyes is having, pride of life is being, right? Being a somebody. So first temptation is in the area of passions. Second in possessions, third is area pride. Devil used bait of money on Judas. Possessions. Judas took the hook, took the bait. And really, if you look at from the very beginning, the sin that happened in the Garden of Eden had all three of these. If you look at Genesis 3, 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Lust of the flesh, good for food. Looks good, lust of the eyes. Pride of life. It's going to make me wise. I'm going to become wise. You'll be just like God's, remember? So in other words, her flesh was involved, satisfied the cravings of her flesh. It was beautiful to look at. And what else? Desire to make one wise. To be someone. I can be my own little God. That was the first temptation there in Garden of Eden. All three of those. Now, for those same temptations, the devil used when he tempted Jesus Christ in the wilderness. For example, if you look at Luke 
4, verse 3, and he says, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stone to become bread. Now think about this. The devil is attacking his flesh, right? He's attacking his flesh. Why? Because in Luke 4, 2, you read, Being tempted for 40 days by the devil, in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. So 40 days... He ate nothing. Some of us can't go out three hours like, mm, I got to get me a snack, right? He didn't eat nothing. So Satan, the devil, attacks him on his flesh and he says, hey, make these stones bread, man. Satisfy your flesh. What was the next one? Lust of the eyes. If you look at Luke 4, verses 5 through 7. The devil took him on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, all will be yours. So all the kingdoms throughout the world, see, Jesus is not disputing it. He says, I'll give it to you. So those those possessions, all will be yours. Eyes have an appetite, right? We look at things. Feast your eyes on that, we have a saying. And there's a reason people want things. Why do people want things they don't even need? Because they look at them and just say, I I want that. I want that. I'm going to have authority and all that kind of stuff. Now, folks, again, I want to point out, there's nothing wrong with having possessions. There are many rich people in the Bible and so forth. And in Deuteronomy uh, 8.18, we've also read this last time, Sunday, is God gives us power to get wealth and so forth. So having possessions and those things are not wrong. But when then these things get perverted, when they become our object of our obsessions, and we rather satisfy that than do the kingdom of God, then it becomes wrong. And then look at the pride of life. Third temptation in verses 9 through 11. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, sent him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, So he's on a pinnacle of the temple. He's in a temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall have his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Wouldn't it be great for Messiah? Now, temple is a church. It's translated our day. Wouldn't it be great for Jesus to come into the temple of the church with this grand entrance coming flying down? What if I had a zip line or something like that coming down to the pulpit, you know? That'd be kind of cool. Wouldn't that be impressive? And he says, just have this impressive entrance. Just cast yourself, just dump from here, and the angels will come get you. That would be so, that would be an awesome way to enter the temple. You see, it's an appeal to his pride. Do something spectacular. Get attention to yourself in a God-forbidden way. So the Jesus faced all the temptations that you face. Jesus faced lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and because that is all that's in this world. Now, how does he use this? You see, devil, he might not read your thoughts and know your heart, but he's one of those people that studies people. He had a lot of experience. He knows what motivates you. He knows what hook to get you with. And you see, he goes fishing. And really what we need to understand, when this flirtation stage starts with temptation or sin in your life, it really starts from the inside. We need to understand that. It's on the inside because Mark 7, 21, 23, it says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adulterous, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, laudness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these 
evil things come from within and defile a man. So first I want us to understand that sin is an inside job. And the problem is nobody wants to admit that anymore. want to blame somebody else. But if you look at the book of James, so we understand who Satan is and how he operates. Now I want to give you some insights because you would have to agree that's how it works. In book of James, uh, chapter 1, verse 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. So the devil goes fishing, but the thing is he knows, studied you, he knows what's on the inside. And James confirms that, saying when we're drawn away, again, drawn away is the fisherman's term, we're drawn away by our own inward desires. So here's a fisherman going fishing, puts a lure, throws it on there, right? Puts different kind of fly or worm on there, whatever it is. And then he's just watching, sitting there watching the fish starts swimming around, looking at it, entertaining it, entertaining it. And then something on the inside says, I can't hold on anymore. And what happens? He jumps on it, explodes, gobbles it up, and now it's on the hook. Whose fault is it? The fisherman? Whose fault is it the fish got caught? We could say the fisherman. But it's also the fish's fault because there was something on the inside that said, I want this. And the Bible calls that your inner desire. So when the devil goes fishing and he throws a hook out in front of you, there's no sin, sin yet. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. But the devil always tangles some kind of bait out there that impacts one of those three areas. And again, you can't blame the devil for going fishing because there's something inside of you that causes it to respond. You know, a couple of summers ago, my brother-in-law has a huge pond, and they stuck it up with fish, you know, fish and all that kind of stuff, and nephews and Stella and I will go fishing, and sometimes they have a competition of who can catch the most fish, and they throw it back. And I was assisting there one time, you know, getting the fish off the hook and so forth. My little nephew caught a catfish, and he had problems getting it off the hook. And sometimes when it swallows that hook, you know, you can't just get it out. So I just cut the line and throw it back. Five minutes later, same nephew, same fish, on the hook. No lie. Get the hook, throw it back in. Literally two minutes later, same fish, because it still has the hook in there, same nephew. He caught the same fish three times. The moral of the story is the success is not necessarily based on how good the fisherman is. It's based on how dumb the fish is. And while you can't keep the devil from casting temptations in front of you, you see, after that flirtation, there has to come a time where you consent. And then that's when the hook is set. And when that hook is set, when you're on the hook, James continues in verse 15, and his figure of speech changes a little bit from fishermen to a wedding and a birth. And verse 15 says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So you see there's the holy, unholy communion taking place. The father of sin is this outward temptation. The mother of sin is your inward lust desire. And when those come together, sin is produced. Let me tell you something. Without inward desire, there can be no consent. There can be no conception. And sometimes sin, since he's talking about conception, 
looks like a joyous and happy occasion, and it is, right? So something's born, let's say a baby's born in your house, that's a joyous occasion, isn't it? So nobody thinks, folks, that sin is bad. Do you, th- you, know, do you know sin is not bad? Why do you think people do it? And I'll tell you, explain something like, what, sin is not bad? No, sin is not bad. That's why it's so tempting, right? Want to please the flesh and all that kind of stuff? Look at Hebrews eleven twenty five. 25. It says, for choosing rather to suffer affliction with God, people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You see, there's passing pleasures. There's pleasures in sin, but it's passing. It's only for a season. But there's pleasures in it. I read one story where a boy was walking. He had a basket of beans in his arms, and he was thrown down on the ground, and there's a couple of pigs there following him, and they're eating all that beans from the ground. And somebody said, well, that's a weird way to feed your pigs. He said, well, I'm not feeding my pigs. I'm, I'm leading them to the slaughterhouse. You see, we don't see the end. We enjoy what's being thrown in front of us. Pleasures of sin, but therefore, a period of time, because if you look at verse 15 again in James, it says, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So why does a fisherman put a worm or some kind of bait on the hook? Because he hides the real deal, right? He hides the real deal. It's not about the worm. It's not about the worm is just the attraction. The real deal is the hook. Well, you think the fish is going to just swim up to an empty hook? Maybe, I don't know how dumb it is, but. No, there has to be some kind of attraction. Most fish are not dumb. They're not, you know, they're dumb, but they're not crazy. Because the worm or the whatever you put on the hook is just covering up the whole deal. It just shows you the beginning. It doesn't show you the entire picture. Look at me back in Genesis 3.6. We just read this, but Eve saw the tree was good for food, was pleasant for the eyes, desirable to make me wise. She took it for the fruit and also gave it to her husband. You know, misery loves company. So everything's good. You had the lust of the flesh, lust of pride of life, and so forth. So sin in its inception seems good, beautiful, pleasant, nice. But again, and look at 15, when it's full grown, brings forth death. We fail to see how devil uses his devices of deception. He always shows us the beginning, not the end. He's distracting us from the real deal, what's behind there. We don't read the fine print. What was Eve's full-grown sin? When she gave in to the desire, what happened? Remember, God told them, don't eat from this tree. They die, you eat it from you, you're going to die. And because of them, the humankind were cursed. Right? Can't wait till I get to heaven and talk to Eve a little bit. We're cursed. Not only the people, but the animal kingdom, the ground we work on, is cursed. For those of you garden, I know you guys don't plant weeds, but weeds somehow grow, right? Why? Because it's the result of the fall. You see, if the devil came and said, hey, Eve, you know that tree God told you not to eat from? Well, I think you should eat it because it's going to make you wise. You know, God doesn't want competition, but it's going to make you wise. But let me also tell you, uh, all the humanity is going to be cursed. Then you're going to have a kid. Then you're going to have another kid, and then one of them is going to kill the other. And then you're going to be in labor. It's going to be painful, and you're going to have to, you know how you go up to a tree and just eat it? Oh, you can't do that no more. You're going to have to work by the sweat of the eye or the brow to eat some food. What do you think Eve would have said? (laughs) 
all that. I ain't going to do that. And folks, we need to understand that devil is working overtime to make sin attractive to you. But we have to look past that. We need to look at the completion. And that's the reason people don't fear sin that much anymore, because they fail to see when it's completed, when it's finished. And we need to understand even as saved people, there are consequences for sin, even if you're saved. And basically, if you think about it, what is sin? Sin is basically taking something to attempt to satisfy a legitimate, God-given desire. It might be hunger, sexual desire, success, or anything. It's a legitimate desire. There's nothing wrong with desires in themselves. But what the devil does is wants to, for you to satisfy them in an illegitimate way. And if you think about it, the devil is a pervert. He got nothing, no original material. All he does is take what's God-given us, and just perverts it. That's all he can do. And folks, we need to understand that God is not responsible for your temptations for sin. And James makes that clear in verse 13. says, let no one say he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God's own nature is incompatible with nature of sin. But what God does give us is in verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and it comes down from the Father of lights whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So what comes from God is not sin or temptation to sin, but every perfect gift. So from temptation to execution, you can't blame God, you can't blame the environment. And really, you can't blame the devil because those are inward desires. And if you don't get the power to Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, you're heading for the bank. He's going to wheel you in. Don't think you can say, resist the devil or tell him I'll put up a cross and he's going to run from you. Mm-mm. So sin has penalties. And as somebody said, forbidden fruits cause many different jams in our lives. So we must flee temptation because the devil is there lurking in the jungle. He wants to pounce on you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to trip you up, then blame you for falling because he's the accuser of brethren. He'll trip you up and then go, God, did you see Corne over there? Is that a Christian? Is that one of your sons? That's what he does. And again, in Matthew 6, 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we're praying and we're saying, lead us not into temptations. Deliver us from the evil one. So notice the pattern of prayer You're not in temptation yet. You're not seeking. You're not currently being possessed by the devil, if you put it that way. You're seeking deliverance. And in Matthew 26, 41, it says, Jesus says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. You see, the best way to deal with your sin is not at the end of the day, Right? But in the beginning of the day, pray to Lord God to prevent all those things. When do we often start praying? When we're in a hot mess, right? Oh, Lord, I did this and that. Get me through this. But in here, he teaches us to not lead us, deliver us, that he doesn't even come near us. And Jesus in Matthew 26 says, watch and pray so you won't enter temptation. 
And I want to give you some principles that were true to Jesus. And if you apply these principles in your life, if you truly do them, you will be a victor. You will not be a victim of the devil. Because God did not call us to fail. Did you know that? I don't know, I sound like a prosperity preacher right now, but it really is true, but in one sense. Look at 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. Sounds good, right? Thanks be to God always leads us in triumph. But you see that little key word, in Christ? Again, if you think about it, in Christ, what does that mean? Submission? Abiding in him? So there is some principles, and the first principle, the very first one before you have any victory, is a principle of sonship. In Luke 3, verses 21 through 22, says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus, who was also baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now, the very first thing you got to do to overcome the devil is to be a son or daughter of God. Say, like Jesus? Well, Jesus was the only begotten son. And I want to tell you, because Jesus became a son of man, the son of God that became a son of man, we can all become sons of God. Look at Galatians 3.26. says, for all, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 2.11 says, For he who sanctifies those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which the reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So the way you come overcome the devil is the same way that Jesus overcame the devil. And his relationship with the Father. Isn't that who we pray into in the beginning of this prayer? Are you born again? If you're not, you're not going to overcome the devil. The only way you're going to even begin to overcome the devil is to be his son or daughter. And again, there's a second principle, which is submission. If you look at Luke 3.22, it says, In you I am well pleased. Why was God the Father pleased with Jesus? Because in John 8.29 you read, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. Why not? For I always do those things that please him. That is, Jesus lived a life of submission. In Philippians 2.8, he even tells us, In being found in appearance of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we can be saved... You can have the principle of sonship and still go down. Why? Because we're not submitted to the Father. And there's a lot of Christians who are carnal and different, and God is very displeased with them. Have we submitted ourselves to him? Do we do those things that please him? And once, what do we get from Submission. Well, your son, you submit. There's going to be spiritual power. Look with me in Luke 4 1. And it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is now in charge of the Lord Jesus' life. And then in verse 14, after being tempted, so he goes to the temptation into the wilderness. He has Holy Spirit with him. He was led by the Holy Spirit. And then when he returned, in verse 14 says, when Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to the Galilee, and the news of him went throughout all surrounding regions. It was obvious who was in control of his life. Submission, led by the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
And because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, I want you guys to understand that Jesus did not overcome the devil as God. Jesus overcame the devil as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one of the principles of the Bible. See, if Jesus overcame the devil as God, <laughs> then Jesus is not really an example to me, is he? So I'm not God. But if Jesus overcame the devil as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, then the Father promises us the same Holy Spirit that was available to Jesus is available to us. So submission... And then, folks, I want to tell you there's a principle of scriptural knowledge. Study, study in this book, the Word of God. That's how you're going to overcome the devil. You see, when the devil came to Jesus, Jesus had all those things. He submitted. He was spirit-filled. And then he used the Word of God. He used the Word of God. Now, if you're just quoting the Bible, the devil is not going to back up if you're not spirit-filled. But look what Paul writes to Ephesians, and he says, Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. What's the sword of the Spirit? Which is the Word of God. It is the Spirit sword. So when a spirit-filled man or woman then the Spirit uses His Word. And every time the devil came to Jesus and said, do this, Jesus replied, it is written, right? If you look at Luke 4, but Jesus answered, 4-4 uh, says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but, every, but by every word of God. Then in verse 8, it says, Jesus answered, said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship your Lord and your God, and him only you should serve. So if you're going to battle, and the word of God is a sword, you better learn how to use a sword, right? What's the point of going to battle if you're just having a sword on your side and you don't know how to use it? You're going to get killed, right? Unless you know how to use the weapon. You see, the devil has this severe allergy to the Word of God. And three times the red devil came and said this and that. And Jesus responded, it is written. Studying God's Word will help us, folks, see the difference between real and counterfeit. What we're trying to do is study all these counterfeit, maybe I'm, not, I'm just making it up, counterfeit religions, right? Well, they have this wrong in their religion that, Study the original thing. That's You only have to study one thing, right? Anybody see that movie, Catch Me If You Can? Of that guy, the true story, how he was forging all kinds of things and then at the end started working for the FBI. And they laid out all kinds of fake $20 bills in front of him and said, which one's fake? And he pointed out all the fake ones. And they ask him, how did you know all these things? How do you know they were fake? Do you, how, many, you know, how do you study all this? He says, I just study the original one. And anything that's different from the original one is a fake one. So that's what the Word of God does for us. And Paul warns us and says in 2 Corinthians again, Satan should not take advantage of us. Why? We're not, we're not ignorant of his devices because they're all here, folks. And the last one I want to say is the principle of satisfaction. Do you know why the devil couldn't get Jesus? He offered him all these things. And because Jesus was satisfied. He was already satisfied. That Jesus didn't have an itch the devil could scratch. In John 14, we read it. He says, I will no longer touch me for the rule of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. And what the devil does is says, hey, you got a need. I can satisfy it. And why do you give in to the devil? 
because you want to be satisfied, right? But if you're already satisfied in Jesus, you won't need anything else. Is there anybody here that doesn't want to be satisfied? All of us want to be satisfied, right? And what does he do? He's trying to get us satisfied in an illegitimate way. I can satisfy that desire, but let's take a shortcut, right? That's what he does. But Jesus was satisfied because everything is in Christ. In Christ, we have everything, and when we actually understand that, we will know that all of our needs, not our greeds, are being met in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason he couldn't get to him, because he didn't have any need the devil could offer him. And you know, in Joshua 1.8, it says this, The book of law should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on day and night, that you may observe, do all according to the written in it. Seek you first the kingdom of God, right? And then it says, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And all these things will be added on to you. Do you see that? You put the word of God, you put God first, do all the things that's written in it. Just like Matthew 6.33 is just repeating. First kingdom of God, his righteousness, all those things will be added to you. And again, if you look at verse 13 in Matthew, it ends, says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The reason we shouldn't be satisfied or, sorry, should be satisfied and not attempted with all these things, everything here will eventually be lost right? His kingdom will stand forever. That's why it says, for yours is the kingdom. Right now, we're living in the kingdom of the devil. Should be entertained for these things. Seek kingdom of God. The ground victory is God himself, and it says, for yours is the kingdom. Satan's powerful, as I said, but he's not all-powerful. Satan rules, but folks, he's a deceiver. He's deceived himself. He's going to lose. And this is the end in Revelation 20. In verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's the end of his kingdom. It will be a time, but here in verse 13 says, For yours is the kingdom. It says, Yours is the powerful. Again, the devil is very powerful. But when you abide in Christ and you live a life of submission, you are more powerful than he is. Because like I said, then it leaves not you and the devil face to face, but God and the devil face to face. In Genesis 18, 14, we read, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And Jeremiah 32, 17 says, You made the heavens and earth by your great power. And Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call on me and I will show you the things which you do not know. We don't even know all the power that God has. Thine is the power. His is the power. He's more mightier than any worldly leadership or the devil himself. And again, if you read John 4, 4, it says, we overcome him because he is who's in us is greater than the one who's in the world. His is the glory. Again, do you want your prayers answered? There's the key to getting your prayers all answered. It's for his glory. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom, power, and glory. Why do we want to ask that? Because it's going to show his power, his glory. And again, John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that in my Father may be glorified in the Son. And as Christians, Paul reminds the Corinthians, in everything that we do, in 10, 31, says, Therefore, whenever you drink, eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when you're reasoning for asking and his reasoning for answering is his glory, your prayer will be answered. When you want him glorified, he wants 
to be glorified, and your prayer will be answered. So we need to understand who devil is. He's not a made-up figure. He's powerful. How he works, three things. He always casts a lure in front of you. You can't blame him for going fishing. And there's ways this Scripture teaches us how to overcome those temptations, how to be delivered from those things. And we apply these principles, we can confidently say and pray, as Paul writes to 2 Timothy in verse 418 says, and the Lord will deliver me. We can say this confidently. We're applying these principles. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're being tempted with, if you're applying those principles in your life, you can confidently say, Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. And again, look at this. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray.